Let me invite you to grab them and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Um, we'll be continuing our study today uh, just in the first 22 verses of Acts. For those of you who are, that are newer uh, to FAC, my name is Mike Kazrowski. I'm part of the team here. And if you are new or visiting, I, I want to invite you to come and join me for our welcome lunch that's next Sunday after second service. Um, this is a great opportunity to just share with others that are new, uh, share a meal with um, some of the staff here at FAC. It's not something that you'll want to miss. Um, you can sign up by filling out the connection card that's attached to your bulletin. There should be a box there that says that you want to come to the welcome lunch. You can just drop that in their offering plate as it goes by. And once again, we want to do whatever we can to make you feel welcome, to make you feel like you're one of us. And uh, this is a very good first step is to join us for the welcome lunch next week after, after second service. I uh, hope to see you there. This morning, we're going to walk through this story in the first 22 verses of chapter 4. But instead of reading the whole passage on the front end like we normally do, I'd like to read the passage as we go and make certain pit stops so as to uh, just discuss kind of certain parts of the story. And so in order to help you out, I've actually divided the passage into five different sections, if you will, uh, and each one I've given a heading, and I'm going to give you those on the front end, so if you're taking notes or trying to follow along where on earth we're going on this little trip that we're going to take this morning, you'll know exactly where we are. And so um, look at these not as main points of the sermon, but rather plot points on a map that we're just going to follow through. In this passage, we're going to see quite a reception a reception. This is in verse four. Um, the, the, there is a resistance in verses one through seven, a resistance. And then we will come to a response and then a rebuke. And finally, a refusal, a reception, resistance, a response, a rebuke and a refusal. Let me pray for our time before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we would ask that your spirit would bring clarity to our minds and to our thoughts, Lord. Uh, we, we have so many things that can get in the way that can serve as a barrier between hearing your voice, Lord, and other voices that surround us. And so I ask, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would mute those other voices, Mute any voice that is trying to creep into our mind right now other than the Holy Spirit, Father. Let there be clarity in thought, clarity in mind. Would you convict us? Would you melt us? Would you conform us uh, to look like your son, Jesus Christ, as we spend time learning about him from your good and perfect word? And in your holy name I pray, amen. Uh, last month, you may have read the news there is a pastor named Wang Yi of a church in Chengdu, China, called Early Rain Covenant Church, who was sentenced to nine years in prison. And his sentencing was for inciting subversion of state power. He was arrested at the end of 2018, and at the end of 2019, he was sentenced to nine years in prison. According to CNN, China is actually, um, it's an official atheist state, but religious practice is legal in the country as long as it falls under the central government's rules and surveillance. 
Basically, all that means is you can practice religion, but you have to play by our rules. You have to play uh, under our supervision. Essentially, the only state-sanctioned church in China is merely used to reinforce some political ideology. The article explains that it takes the Bible in sermons and they use it merely to further support their own uh, agenda. One anonymous pastor from this article that I was reading um, has been told from Chinese authorities that Chinese tradition is that the state leads and the church follows. And so if you don't know, Christianity in China is actually spreading very wide and very vast and very rapidly. And this has caused quite a power struggle for those in authority. So much so that Time Magazine, when it comments on Pastor Yi's prison sentence, has claimed that there are experts saying that this sentence that they have handed down to Pastor Yi proves that China feels threatened by the spread of Christianity. Unfortunately, as we see this persecution of the church, it comes as no surprise to us, probably. Right? Because if, if we read through history, you'll know that this is not uncommon. Throughout centuries, we can find such stories of persecution. We can find stories of, uh, of authorities. It's been a tradition of authorities, if you will, uh, to attempt to stop the spread of Christianity. And this tradition can be traced all the way back to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, where we find a story of Peter and John being arrested marks the beginning of a resistance to the church and the spread of the message of Jesus, and it hasn't stopped since. The Time article claims that China is threatened by the spread of Christianity, and so it's, not, it's, it's pretty interesting and comes as no surprise in Acts 4 when we see in verse 4 how it mentions the contagious spread of the message of Jesus in those first few months since Jesus died on the cross. Um, and so I want to do something a little different and start in verse 4. We'll come back to verse 1, but take a look with me and just, just look at verse 4, and you'll see the type of reception that this message of Jesus Christ has received. Uh, verse 4, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. If you've been here the last two weeks... In order to catch you up, we've been traveling through this story of Peter and John that started at the beginning of chapter 3. Peter and John, they were heading into the temple for a time of corporate prayer. They see a lame man who has been handicapped from birth, and they heal him. They show compassion on him, and in the name of Jesus and by the power of Jesus, they heal this lame man. Now, because this happened and everybody recognized this lame man had been healed, they garnered quite a crowd. Everybody started surrounding, and so Peter does what he does, and he, he starts talking. He starts sharing this message of Jesus because the people are looking for an explanation for what happened, and Peter is telling them this happened because of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And then in verse 4 of chapter 4, we read that the amount of people, or men for that matter, who have heard the word about Jesus' is, is resurrection— and not just heard the word, but actually believed it, put their faith in Jesus, has now grown to about 5,000 people. 
Now, this isn't to say that 5,000 people became believers in that moment during Peter's speech, as, as if it was this one isolated incident. It, it does say that many at this moment heard and believed. But what this really is saying is that up until this point in the book of Acts, since Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, there are now about 5,000 people that believe in Jesus at this moment. This is quite a rapidly expanding movement. The fact that there's now 5,000 believers in Jerusalem demonstrates how rapidly this message is expanding. Because if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about those first moments after Jesus rose from the grave. And he talks about in that time between his resurrection and his ascension, when he went back to heaven, Paul writes that there were 500, there was over 500 people that saw Jesus in his resurrected state. What he means is that 500 people at least saw Jesus in bodily form. They witnessed him alive. They witnessed him as, as being resurrected. And so you could say that this new group of believers started at about 500 people. And within a matter of months, not years, months, if that, has increased to five thousand people. This reception is significant. That's, that's like a thousand percent new conversion growth when, within a few months. And this reception, which happens in first century Jerusalem, actually serves as proof that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave, that his resurrection actually happened. Because think about this. If the disciples were set out to spread a lie, if they wanted to lie about this event that happened, the hardest place to spread a lie is the very place that the story originated from. The very location of Jerusalem would make it nearly impossible for this lie of a resurrected Jesus to catch on. Because if I tune in to Erie News now and they tell me a story, they share with me a news, something that happened in the news, and I don't believe them or I'm skeptical, I'm not going to take their word for it, then all I have to do is to drive to the place where this event took place and I can see it with my own eyes. I can speak to the witnesses myself. And then I will be convinced. And so for those people in Jerusalem, during this time that they're hearing about this event, hearing about this resurrected Jesus, all they had to do was take a 15-minute stroll to Jesus' tomb where he was buried, where everyone knew he was buried, and find that it's empty. The fact that the amount of believers grew to about 5,000 people in the first months in Jerusalem is remarkable and further proof that this resurrection is valid and it's worth considering. Now, if you're an outsider looking in, much like we are in, in, in this century, in our time, we are outsiders looking into these events. This is exciting stuff. In the first 
three chapters of Acts. You have the Holy Spirit filling people. Miracles are happening. Community is forming. They're taking care of each other. There is great unity. And you may read this and you say, I desire that. I often hear people all the time say, can't we just go back to what church was like in the book of Acts? Can't we just be an Acts church? And that's great. And I even agree with those people. However, we must understand and be prepared for what comes with the territory of being an Acts church. Because in Acts 4, we see the first bit of resistance take form through persecution. We must know that, yes, Acts, Luke, as the writer of Acts, writes about how the church was spirit-filled and writes about how it was unified and how it did great ministry. But Luke also teaches us about how the church was persecuted. Persecution comes with the territory of being a believer of the persecuted Jesus. After Acts chapter 3, 22 of the remaining 25 chapters that we're going to study together all mention persecution. Persecution is a necessary part of the Christian life. In the case of Peter and John, we see them experience this persecution. We see them, if you will, experience resistance to their message. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 7 together and see what kind of resistance they experienced. This is what it says. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Could you imagine if law enforcement came busting in here at this very moment through the back doors and hauled me away before I even got to finish the sermon? This is the first look at formal hostility towards the church. We get the feeling that these authorities didn't even let Peter and John finish. They just came in mid-sermon and hauled them away. And we read that the people that hauled them away, while they were still speaking, it was the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees that essentially seized them by force. And without getting too much into it and who these people are, we just need to understand that these are some of the most important people in the temple. They were officials or magistrates that were in charge of the holy site, of the temple. They were responsible to make sure that the temple was functioning. The captain of the temple was actually second in command, only to the high priest, second to only the high priest. And he was the chief of the police in the temple, if you will, and he had the power to arrest people. One of, the, one of his key roles was to keep the peace in the temple. If there was any kind of uproar, any kind of rebellion, anybody teaching things contrary to what they would want 
taught in the temple, the, 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 this captain of the temple would step in. And we read that this group of high-ranking officials is greatly annoyed. They view Peter and John as kind of just a nuisance, almost like a bug to be squashed out. Just flick that thing away. Get them, get them out of the crowd's presence. And they're annoyed for two reasons. First, that they were just teaching in general. But they were also greatly annoyed by what they were teaching. Specifically, that there was going to be a resurrection that came from, uh, from Jesus. There's a resurrection from the dead in Jesus. The Sadducees is a sect of Judaism that doesn't believe in an end times resurrection. And so you could imagine how annoying this would be for Peter and John to be preaching about the resurrection that's in Jesus Christ at the end times. And so they take Peter and John, and because it was getting to be evening, they just hold them overnight. And the next day, Peter and John are brought into the company of the highest rulers in Judaism. They are brought before the high priest and his family and are presented before the top figures in Judaism who are gathered to render judgment about what to do with these two people that are causing quite a a, a scene. Now, as you read through those names, you may recognize, if you're familiar with some other stories in Scripture, you may recognize the names Annas and Caiaphas in verse 6 because you can go to John 18 And you can read the story about Jesus who stood trial because he caused an uproar in the temple. And when he stood trial, he was crucified. And sure enough, who presided over the court when Jesus stood trial? Annas and Caiaphas. So Peter and John, just a mere month or so after Jesus' trial, stand before the same men to give testimony about Jesus. For the high priest, you can imagine, he's probably thinking, haven't we already taken care of this? Like, like what what happened? Didn't Didn't we take care of this Jesus guy? I thought we put him to death. How has this problem not been fixed? You see, for them, when Jesus started an uproar in the temple, these leaders adopted the strategy to just kill off Jesus and all of their problems would be solved. This would stop the uprising of the rebellion. Their initial strategy was, if we can just cut off the head of the movement, then the movement dies. But what we come to find through the book of Acts, and specifically in chapter 4, is that Jesus' crucifixion not only failed to kill the movement, but it multiplied it. It mobilized it. It's like that mythical uh, creature in Roman mythology that the priests probably would have been familiar with, the hydra. It's, It's the monster that when you cut off the head, two more heads grow in its place. You'll see this theme throughout Acts where one person or region is persecuted as a direct result of that persecution. The gospel, the message of Jesus, expands sporadically to other areas and reaches even more areas. The the spread is even further. The opposition to the gospel try to extinguish the fire of the gospel in one spot 
only to lift up their heads and see another fire has sprouted up somewhere else. And another one has sprouted up somewhere else. It seems like the harder they try to snuff this thing out, it only grows more and it only grows more powerful and its reach goes further because these flames have ignited out of control. This is the expansion of the message of Jesus at play. You cannot snuff it out no matter how hard you try. Caiaphas is looking at this Christian rebellion as some kind of a monster and thinking, wait a minute, we just killed one guy about this a few months ago and now I've got two guys standing before me sticking up for this Jesus guy. The priests are experiencing the rapid growth of this movement in front of their very eyes and they perceive it as a threat to their authority. Because that's the very heart of their question in verse 7, isn't it? They say, Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're referring to the healing that was followed up by, by the teaching, but they're not questioning the evidence of the healing. They're questioning their authority. These guys actually don't even care that this man was healed, that Peter and John had compassion on this man and that he was healed. They don't care about his well-being. All they care about is their own authority. And so basically they're asking through this question is who gave you the authority to do this? Because from their seat, they are responsible for the temple and keeping it pure and everything that goes on there. And they're saying, we haven't given you the authority to do this. We haven't given you the authority to teach in this way. And so who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come into the temple and heal this man and teach in such a way? In this moment, they view themselves as the highest authority and they are challenging any other authority from the outside that comes into their jurisdiction. In a sense, They feel as if their authority is being threatened on their own turf. And they react in such a way because they know that this teaching of the apostles could shake things up for them. It could shake things up politically, spiritually, socially, and religiously. They could be thrown from their throne of power. And so they don't care about this man, nor care that he was healed because they are too preoccupied with their own authority and power. This is what all 22 verses are about. If you want a summary of what this is in chapter four, it's all about the wrestling match for authority. These priests are desperately holding on to their authority. And this is a pride issue of who will submit to whom? Which one's going to break? Peter and John, they take a bold stance that there will be no submission on their part because they report to a higher authority. Take a look at verses 8 through 12. They ask the question, verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, 
by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter defends their work from the day before. He says, look, if we're on trial for doing something good, for healing this crippled man, let me tell you where our authority comes from. And then once again, he deflects all glory to Jesus. Peter says, I want you, I want this court, and I want all Israel, for that matter, to know that this man stands here healed today because of the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. You ask me by whose authority did I do such thing? Let the record show that Jesus Christ is the authority. And you know Jesus. You remember? He's the guy that you put to death. You crucified him. But guess what? He's no longer dead. God raised him to life. And let me tell you a little bit more about him since I have an audience with you. And then Peter goes on in verses 11 and 12 to explain two things. First, he explains the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Jesus. And then he explains the exclusivity of Jesus. He explains the supremacy of Jesus by using an object lesson. He quotes Old Testament scripture, Psalm 118, verse 22, where he says that Jesus was like a stone that you guys as builders rejected. You threw it off to the side. You didn't think you could use it for anything. And so you put it in the dump. But God has taken that stone that you threw out and has actually brought it in and made it the cornerstone of his building. The cornerstone in this context is the main stone that sits at the base of a building that holds up two intersecting walls. Without this stone, the walls would come crashing down. It's the most important stone in the whole building. And so Peter's point is clear. While the religious leaders and the authorities of the day rejected Jesus and regarded him as useless, God takes Jesus and makes him the very foundation of the building that he is constructing. Jesus is the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. And here's the irony to all of this. The high priests are trying Peter and John in order to keep the purity of the temple that they stand in. From a physical standpoint, Jesus had no place in the temple that was built by human hands. So they literally rejected him by putting him on the cross. And once again, this was an attempt to keep and protect the physical temple, right? But if you're familiar with history, you know that in 70 AD, the Romans come in 
and destroy the temple. The very room that they sat in to try Peter and John no longer existed after 7 AD. They absolutely lay waste to the temple. This physical temple, which very much represented a certain ideology from these religious leaders, is now a bunch, it's a rubble pile. But the kingdom of God still stands. Why? Because Jesus is the cornerstone. It's for this reason that in Scripture we're told that we as believers are now the temple of God with a cornerstone that will never fail. The integrity of a building relies on the strength of its cornerstone. You remove or destroy the cornerstone and the building falls. And so a quick side point of application in your own life, what is your cornerstone? Many people as builders will build their life around their family or around their education or around their job, but none of those are strong enough to act as a cornerstone. The cornerstone in our life and in our faith of Christianity must be Jesus Christ because anything else we build our life on will collapse under the weight and pressure of our sin. And because there is nothing else that can act as the cornerstone, because of the supremacy of Jesus, we also come to find the the exclusivity of Jesus. This is what Peter says in verse 12, that there is no salvation in anybody else. There is no other thing that you can claim that will save you. There is no other name that we are saved by. Jesus is the highest authority. He's the cornerstone on which the building rests. And so he is the only path to salvation. Don't let this pass you by briefly. You cannot be saved. You cannot be made right with God unless Jesus is the cornerstone of your life. This exclusivity of Christ is very offensive and threatening in our culture because similarly to then, this challenge is authority. This challenge is who I'm going to submit to. You, you mean I have to submit to someone to be saved? Our culture has somehow bought into this um, nonsense called plurality. And I call it nonsense because plurality says all roads lead to God. Meaning I can, fo- I can follow whatever religion I want. I don't even need to follow a religion. I can do whatever I want. And ultimately, there's one destination, and that destination is God. The reason this is nonsense, though, is because Christianity and any other religion is mutually exclusive. If Christianity is true, it negates all other religions. If any of the other religions are true, it negates Christianity. Because it's in Christianity that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except 
through me. And so you're either for me or you're against me. If this is true, there's exclusivity. And it might sound harsh. Well, who does he think he is to be able to make such a claim? Let me remind you of the supremacy of Jesus. Because he is the cornerstone, because of his supremacy, his authority, he has the right to draw the line in the sand and say, you are either for me or you are against me. For the high priest and his cohorts, they were against him, which is why we see a rebuke in verses 13 through 18. Follow along with me as I read it. It says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived and perceived that they were uneducated men, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We get the feeling sense that the high priest and everybody else in that room are kind of taken aback by Peter and John. Because in their minds here, they have a a couple of uneducated, ordinary men that speak with boldness and knowledge and conviction. When When they brought them into the trial, they knew that they were common people. They knew that they were uneducated. They knew that they were ordinary, meaning they are not like one of us. They haven't gone through the training and and, and the studies that we have gone through. And so obviously they're ordinary and uneducated and they bring them in and they're, they're probably saying, perhaps we can just intimidate them. Let's just throw our credentials around uh, and this should do the trick. This should scare them off, shouldn't it? But boy, are they surprised when Peter and John hold their own. How on earth can they do such a thing? How can they stand before a council that have devoted their lives to such things and speak with such boldness and conviction and knowledge? The text tells us. In verse 8, it tells us that Peter was full of the Holy Spirit. And verse 13 tells us that they hung around Jesus. And so between being full of the Holy Spirit... And their time with Jesus, we see the type of boldness and confidence and education that an uneducated, ordinary, common individual can have. I have come to find in my years as a pastor that there are two main reasons why people don't share their faith. The first one is they say, I'm uneducated. Basically, they say, I don't know how. I don't know what the words to say. I don't know what the right answers are. I don't, have the, I don't have the best defense. So I don't know how, and so I'm not going to do it. The second thing that they say, a common barrier that keeps people from sharing their faith is, I'm too scared. 
What if I open my mouth and my family rejects me or I lose my friends or I, even worse in our culture, lose our job because of it? And so I'm uneducated, I don't know how, or I'm too scared. But what we find here is that Peter, being full of the Spirit and hanging out with Jesus, had both. You want the boldness and articulation of Peter? Then do what he did. Be full of the Holy Spirit and hang out with Jesus. Be a student of Jesus as it's written in his word. Because the council here, they they see they have a little problem. Between John and Peter's boldness, which came from the Holy Spirit and their knowledge, which came from Jesus, and the evidence of a lame man that was healed, we read in verse 14 that the court was left speechless. They had nothing to say because the evidence speaks for itself. And yet, after all of that, the council still doesn't have the eyes and the ears to respond and to submit to Jesus. Their hearts are still hardened. This may sound strange, but this actually comes as an encouragement to me because it shows me that I can have the most airtight defense when sharing the message of Jesus. I can be the most articulate. I can be the most knowledgeable. I can have the greatest boldness or confidence. I can obtain the greatest evidence. I can build the best case for Jesus possible. And there will still be people blind to his supremacy and exclusivity. And as troublesome as this is, it's an encouragement to me because the pressure is off. If you are obedient in sharing the message of Jesus with a loved one, and they still don't submit to Jesus, please know that it is not your fault. It's not your responsibility to save people because you can't save people. You can't pressure or provoke someone to faith. Only Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit can save people. Only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes. Only the Holy Spirit can do the heart transplant necessary for them to know Jesus and accept him. That's his responsibility. What's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to make the message known and then let the Holy Spirit do his work. Our responsibility is uh, merely to be obedient to presenting the gospel, to, to put it out like a food on platter, and then you let the Holy Spirit captivate the hearts of men and women. You let the Holy Spirit put the hunger in their heart that makes them desire to know Jesus in his righteousness. So yes, we should be able to give an, an answer. That's scripture. 
We should be in t- diligent in our study, but the, at the end of the day, it's God who opens blind eyes. If you are active in sharing the message of Jesus, you do not need to be so hard on yourself because you have literally done everything in your own power that you can do. And so it's time for us to start relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter and John present the greatest defense and the council still rejects Jesus and therefore rebukes Peter and John. They don't want this message getting out any further. They're threatened by its spread. And so they warn Peter and John not to speak about Jesus any longer. That word warn in verse 17 is very harsh. It's a straight up threat that if they don't stop talking about Jesus, something bad is going to happen. It's a threat that's intended to intimidate Peter and John. This is fear-mongering at its finest. This is an abuse of their authority. They're throwing their weight around, throwing their authority around in hopes to attempt to secure their own authority in place. The problem with this, though, is that Peter and John have already testified to the fact that Jesus is supreme and that he is exclusive and that he was dead, but now he's been raised from the dead. And Peter and John know that there is resurrection in Jesus because that's what they were teaching. That's what the the, the captain of the temple was annoyed by, the fact that they were preaching that that there is resurrection from the dead. And those with Jesus who are with Jesus and on his side will experience life. They know that if they submit to the authority of Jesus, they too would be resurrected to life. And so if death is the worst thing that you can threaten one with, how on earth do you silence and control a people that aren't even afraid of death itself? Which is why we see a refusal in the final verses of our passage. Take a look at it with me. Let's see what what Peter and John do. Do they fall under the pressure of this threat? Not at all. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them. Because of all the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Peter and John say, if Jesus is in fact the cornerstone, then we have no choice but to follow him. If what we have witnessed is true, we have no choice but to tell people about it. And they make the ethical claim, hey, what is more right? I think it's more right to follow God than to follow local authorities because Jesus is the ultimate authority. Yes, we should be good model citizens and yes, we should submit to authorities placed above us. But when the day comes, when we are commanded to pledge our allegiance or loyalty to anything else, Other than Jesus, that is the day that we boldly refuse. And we ought not let these pressures creep in. 
Perhaps nobody is asking you in this moment to recant, but I believe that we are experiencing social pressures that are creeping in and challenging our loyalty to Jesus. Social pressures that are trying to pull us away from the supremacy of Christ, trying to pull us away from the exclusivity of Christ. Don't get me wrong, there are a lot of gray areas in Christianity. There are a lot of theological distinctions in Scripture. But when it comes to the supremacy and exclusivity of Jesus, this is an immovable stone. There is no leeway on the supremacy and exclusivity of Jesus. And so when it is challenged by any human authority, we must refuse. We must refuse them as they reject Jesus. And we must hold on to this loyalty to him. H.G. Wells, famous author, has said that the trouble with so many people is that the voice of their neighbor sounds louder in their ears than the voice of God. Where does our true loyalty lie? Because Jesus is the ultimate authority and because he is the only way to God the Father, we must be more loyal to him than anything else. You must be more loyal to Jesus than your government, than your political party. You must be more loyal to Jesus than your sports teams. I'm going to get in trouble for this. You must be more loyal to Jesus than the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm looking at you, Pastor DeAndre. I owed him one. You must be more loyal to Jesus than your very family, than your children, than your spouse. All of it. His encouragement to you. In one of the articles I was reading about Pastor Yi in China, I came across the story of one of his congregants who was detained along with him and she was interrogated. Her name was Lee. And she was asked to sign a document that recanted her faith in Jesus, that recanted her involvement in her church, basically disowning the church and disowning Jesus. And as the interrogator threatened her to sign it, Lee responded by saying, I am a citizen who has faith. God knows everything you are doing and he will judge you one day. Lee knows that there's nothing they could do. Nothing they could do that would get her to disown her loyalty to Jesus. And as for China, whose government actively condemns and persecutes Christianity, a country that puts a great deal of effort to stamp out Christianity, there are reports that China has the fastest growing Christian community in the world. That by the year 2030, China, that persecutes Christianity so hard, will have more believers than any other country in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that there is no way for you to be stopped. There is no government, there is no authority, there's no principality that can ever come in the way of your message being shared to the ends of the earth, Lord. And we know that there will come a day when the message has been heard by all nations that your son Jesus will return and he will return as a king in full supremacy. We look forward to that day, Father, 
And in the meantime, while we wait for that day, will you give us strength? Will will we not be shaken by the threats of the world and the social pressures of the world, Lord? And would we be able to stand here in good faith and say that Jesus reigns supreme? We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your kindness to us, Father. And we pray as we go uh, about the week that you would go before us and prepare us. Uh, And even as we speak with people about the name of Jesus, that we would be able to preach his name with the boldness of Peter and John. I ask, Father, that you would bless the offering that we take. I pray that this would be an act of worship on our part and that these resources would be uh, used to make Jesus' name known and make it great. We praise you, Father, and in your holy name we pray. Amen.